OTB AM. This is OTB Sports Radio. That was an OTB Podcast Network presentation. Rugby on Off the Ball. With Vodafone, official sponsors of the Irish rugby team. Team of us. Everyone in. Jimmy, welcome along to episode two of Keith Wood's State of the Union, where we ask what, what is for the game of rugby union. Our guest this week is Paul Vaughan, who has a long career in rugby administration on the commercial side. Paul, I, I don't want to list off the various jobs you've had, but you've been involved with the RFU at a very senior level over a long period of time, both with the organisation as itself and then the separate organisation that runs the Rugby World Cup event itself. Mm. So a wide breadth of experience to be able to talk about the pressures that the game is facing at the moment. Uh, yes, absolutely. And before that, um, uh, I was, I've was i never worked in beer and sport, really, Jeff. So that's a, that's a good start. So I used to work for Whitbread many years ago and was a sponsor of many things, including rugby, and did a huge amount of stuff, including sponsoring Harlequins, where obviously Keith used to play. <clears throat> um, but uh, I was the first guy to approach uh, Vernon Pugh, for instance, to actually ask him to actually collective, collectivize the commercial rights for the Five Nations. So. I had a client in Lloyd's TSB. I just left Whitbread at that point. And, you know, this is in the mid, uh, mid nineties when effectively Lloyd's TSB were looking for something to do. So we introduced him to Vernon Pugh and he brought together the five countries in order to be able to do the deal. So we brought new money into the game and actually put some new, uh, interesting, uh, bits of inventory together, really, I guess. Uh, can, so, I ask, can I ask about that, Paul, just uh, on Vernon Pugh? So he was the chair of IRB at the time, was he? He was, he was, um, but also, and also had an office around the corner from where I worked in Drury Lane at the time. Um, but what was it like in terms of a lot of those guys who would have been old amateurs are now at the, at the absolute pinnacle of, a, of what could have been a huge and became a huge commercial machine? Well, I think if you go if you go if you go right back, um, it wasn't long before that that the IRB was actually run by one guy out of uh, Bristol. And uh, when I started to get involved in the Rugby World Cup in nineteen ninety well, one, uh, effectively it was the second edition. And I remember going to the to to the event at Twickenham with people like Alan Callan, who was the commercial agent at the time for world for the irb and bearing in mind it was very amateur amateur at the time uh he actually did an extraordinary job of, of sort of helping fund the irb through the development of the world cup from 91 onwards and then in 95 i brought heineken into because heineken was one of the whitbread brands in the uk and I brought Heineken into that that point uh, into the World Cup, so we became the beer category sponsor. So I had to bring the Dutch on, and the French obviously were very key as a as a key market for Heineken. Uh, so between the French and ourselves, we 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 managed to get Heineken in. So and Heineken's involvement then stayed through uh, for some time until Guinness took over in 1999, and I worked on the Guinness account when I worked for Alan Pascoe at the time as an agency before I joined the RFU. So sort of a long history of in and out of 
different brands, same sort of same sort of uh, uh, tournaments, and a lot of knowledge being built in terms of how you do things. Because if you remember back in 1991, I mean, it was all about it was a bit of a bit of a free for all in terms of the World Cup, for instance, when Sony was the broadcast sponsor on ITV in this country, and that really hacked off everybody else because Sony weren't uh, they weren't a sponsor of the event. So that's when they had to change the rules of who who was allowed to have first crack at uh, at sponsoring the broadcast piece if they did a broadcast deal. So inevitably in 95, Heineken through me, I did the broadcast deal as well. So it was a, it was a good, good opportunity to actually get Heineken on the map. At the same time, through my relationship with Vernon Pugh, um, I uh, sponsored the, uh, the first, the inaugural Heineken Cup, the European competition because we had a relationship with a, a number of clubs across Wales and England in particular. And, and broadly, we, we sort of, we invented the origins of the, of the European Cup, which then Vernon Pugh then sold back to me through Alan Callan. But, you know, it was a sort of a, a tangled web at the time. Yeah, it's funny because I look, I look back on that and, and like we touched on this last week as well, but it's good to have a kind of uh, almost an insider in, involved in it as well. Yeah. And, and when the game went professional, and the reason we talk about this is because of the influence yeah. that the English club game has had uh, in the intervening 25 years where uh, it has a huge level of influence. It is feared quite heavily by the... Um, by the national unions. It's feared a fair bit, I think, by world rugby because it's, it carries a huge amount of financial clout and influence, as does the French. Um, but in that period of time, I mean, how did it get to the point that the RFU didn't take control of the club game? Because if that had happened, would we have a very different landscape now? Well, if you remember going back to the World Cup in 1995, and the game then decided to go pro at the at the final dinner, effectively, of, of the World Cup after the final. And uh, the then secretary of the RFU was one Dudley Wood, uh, who was a lovely guy, um, made this announcement that the RFU would take a moratorium whilst they'd think about uh, what to do or what not to do within the game commercially and in indeed professionalism. So inevitably, because of that, a, a whole group of entrepreneurs suddenly became involved in buying clubs that was effectively an investment, thinking that the world is going to be a fantastic place very shortly. And it had a number of other effects as well, because in that, inevitably junior clubs started paying players with no idea of where the revenue was going to come from. So if you think about people like Ashley Levette, who you probably remember, who bought Richmond. Richmond, yeah. Um, and he suddenly decided that it wasn't going to give him a great return on investment and then pulled out. And then the club collapsed effectively back down to level six or seven or wherever they are, if you put them at the time. Um, they uh, struggled their way back and they're now in level two. And their ambition now is to be the best amateur club possible and they are a community club and know where their revenues are 
and actually are a very well managed club because they basically reset themselves uh, into something that they know is affordable. Uh, the other big entrepreneur at the time, if you remember, was John Hall, uh, who decided that he would do the whole Newcastle, the Northeastern Sporting Club at the time. So he bought the ice hockey club, he owned the football club, uh, he bought the rugby club, and then again, he was another one that discovered that you know, the, the potential returns weren't there. Let's stick to football and pull that of everything else. Um, so in the early days, you had this sort of rush of let's throw money at the problem. And the difficulty that the RFU had at, the point, at that point was a complete lack of control because effectively the RFU was being run at the time by some very well-meaning people who had very little experience of professional sport. Uh, because effectively what the RFU had done for the previous 100 years is to run a Victorian amateur game. And there's this massive pyramid, and there's a very few small club, very few clubs at the top of, of which is effectively is the Premiership now, which is 12, and out of 2,000 clubs, so 99.9% .9 are amateur of what what is run. But within that, of course, you've got the school system that provides players' introduction to the game, and it gives a structure to how people are introduced to the game and it also uh, is a funded it's a funded thing and it's funded through the education system rather than sport now this is some, this is an area where even though potentially you should come back to it at some point which is about where does sport education and health all join together and where are the budgets they're all completely separated in government terms but in reality it's should it, it they should probably work better together um and at, at the moment they're, they're probably very fragmented so um you you end up with uh a group of people and the rfu at the time was tiny in terms of the number of people actually running it and i think there's probably the same in in every other union around the world as as professionalism uh drove the differences between where I mean you would remember the amateur times and amateur players suddenly becoming professional and playing for, and representing your country and and suddenly it was a whole well who's going to pay us and where's the money coming from and who's going to release who for training or touring or what are the Lions going to do and all of this sort of stuff that's just massive questions and quite difficult for a group of people who had no experience of running professional sport. I remember actually, even at the start of professionalism, sorry, Ger, we're talking, we've left you out of the loop here, but um, <laughs> I remember joining Quinns and Dick Best, who had been assistant, he'd been an England coach and assistant lines coach. And uh, Bestie's view was very simple. We now have you, we can train you eight hours a day. You know, like that lasted two weeks until everybody fell apart and then it suddenly became a little bit more organized again. And like it was funny because there was a huge amount of nervousness over the commerciality of the game because we thought that we would, even when I was over in Quinns, that we would still be able to work. And for the first season, we trained a lot in the evening time to cater yeah. for the guys who had worked. So Will Carling was working in the city, uh, Jim Staples. Uh, 
Alex know. There was a load of guys that were down in, still working in the city. And we tried to see whether we could juggle both. And after three or four months, we knew that that wasn't sustainable at all. Sorry, Ger, I can see you looking to ask a question in there. No, it's fascinating stuff. I, I, I think from my understanding of what happened in all of the unions, it's fairly similar that a small bunch of people who have come from committees, essentially, which are how do we make sure the team shows up on the day it's yeah. supposed to do? Yeah. How do we make sure that if there's a disciplinary issue at some club, it gets sorted out? How do we make sure there are enough coaches coming through? All of a sudden are responsible for the commercial arrangements of thousands of players and the biggest tournaments that the game has to offer. And there is money on offer from broadcasts and sponsors because they see the opportunity to invest behind this and make money off it too. And I can see why there would be pressure. I, I wonder how quickly we got to a point where the unions understood that they didn't have the wherewithal to run the situation. Um, I'm not sure that's the, that's the case that they actually think they don't have the wherewithal, um, uh, which does suggest that they do think they do have the wherewithal. Um, so therefore, you know, do they have the right wherewithal? That's, that's the issue. And also the conflict between running effectively the governance of the sport plus the national sides, which, which effectively are the owned teams of the union. So uh, I, all those representative sides and the pathways through the coaching development, the referees, the governments, the disciplinary piece, all of that and the commercial piece. You need the commercial bit to make the the playing piece work at a, at a national at a at an international level. Uh, you also need to reinvest into the into the grassroots game in order to be able to keep the pipeline of players coming through. But also, what you also have to realise is that the 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 broad amateur playing base is predominantly your audience. And your audience is where all revenues stem from, because whether that's through TV or ticketing or merchandise or licensing or whatever, it's all connected. Rare, and then I say rarely, it's, rarely is the wrong word. And then you get people coming in from the outside who have never played the game before, but they've probably got some sort of connection with it in some form or another and enjoy watching it. And that's the new audience that everybody's trying to drive in at the moment and say, that's where we're going to get our, that's where, that's where the future revenues are. Because TV companies only pay if they can get a return on investment. Investors only pay if they can get a return on investment. So CBC, who have now bought into various tournaments or leagues, um, they're looking for a return on investment. And they will be looking to make sure that things improve to become profitable. Profitable, because um, otherwise, why would they have done it in the first place? They don't do it for nothing. Paul, not Paul, does that, for... Paul, does that become a huge issue? I think that's a very interesting idea of it because we'd often see, you know, it's rare that it gets kind of filtered down to the fact that the straight supporters fund everything. You know, we and we always think that it's a much wider idea than it is. And I know that when Sky took over some of the rights originally in, uh, in England, um, that the actual numbers that were subscribing to Sky for rugby were so small yeah. as to almost um, 
affect some of the commerciality of the sponsors within it because they said, well, there's actually only 250,000 people watching rugby. Yeah. And really, we you keep saying it's an awful lot more because, yeah. and I remember going through it um, um, on, on one particular time for Lions having a, uh, from Sky having the Lions tour and their biggest ever number was one and a half million. And Ireland, England the previous year had been nine and a half million on the BBC because it was free to air. Mm. And I was trying to get that balance between the two of them. But like, is the market, is the market finite or is it one of these ones? Because we, we talked again last week about the global game, about expanding it as wide as you possibly can, yeah. both within our countries and to as many countries as possible. But is it a finite market that's there? Uh, inevitably, there has to be a finite market, but, the, but people do different things for different reasons. So Sky at the time, and uh, again, I go back to, because this was the 90s. Uh, so Sky's not been around for forever. And prior to that, uh, effectively, the only people that would be able to offer you anything at all financially would have been the BBC or ITV in this market. And you also sell your rights overseas as well. So you do it in a fragmented way. Uh, the lack of competition means that the price stays low. Uh, Sky as a new entrant coming in were uh, predicating their strategy on a sports-based channel with entertainment around it as well, but sport being primarily football, but you, but you need a lot of content. So you need to fill, you need content to fill your channel. Otherwise, why are people buying it? So Sky came in and they bought golf and they bought cricket. Uh, so they filled the summer and the winter they, and they wanted more because effectively it's difficult to fill 24 hours a day, 365 days of the year. And so therefore you need overseas football, you need overseas rugby, you need overseas cricket, you need a bit of everything to come in and actually make up this whole channel. When you get to a point where you've got enough subscribers, because don't forget it's the subscription model that you're, you're, you're relying on in their case. And don't forget, they almost went bust a couple of times. Um, and when you get to, a, when you get to a, a, a number that actually starts to generate enough cash, you then start to change the strategy. And you can see what what's happened now with BT coming into the market as well. Uh, BT then took a look, and Sky are not going to bid against BT particularly heavily because actually what they're doing now is funding more into entertainment. But now they've got a, Sky's got a new owner, don't forget. Um, and you've got Liberty who have bought Virgin, and they're not going to be a buyer of direct rights because they they basically basically provide carriage for everybody else for a fee. Uh, but they decided to go and buy Formula One, for instance. And actually, they haven't made any money yet, I don't think. But um, what they've done is they've expanded the cost base massively, as far as I can see. Uh, and unluckily, uh, due to the virus problem and the pandemic, um, you know, we haven't seen any Formula One this year yet. But it's an incredibly expensive uh, thing to get into. Uh, and if you're in the media game, do you want to own your content or not? And I think, you know, Netflix have actually demonstrated that if you make your own content, you own it. And that's why everybody else is doing it as well. Um, 
Liberty have decided that Formula One, if you own if you own the product, you can control it and you can actually make more money in other ways as well. So coming back to rugby and coming back to the to TV, uh, I think the market is going to write itself to a degree in terms of who's bidding for what. And if you've only got BT bidding and they've got a they've got a effective they've done a deal, a supply deal between BT and Sky and and vice versa in terms of carriage, that that effectively that depresses competition for rights. So therefore the price will drop. I mean it's simple economics uh, and simple supply and demand. Um, so if you want something badly enough, you'll pay a lot of money for it. But you've got to have a reason why you want it. And it's not always about necessarily because I know I'm going to sell lots of advertising. ITV have done very well on that for the Rugby World Cup. But then again, it's a protected uh, event. So they need to have terrestrial coverage and therefore ITV have to come up with a reasonable price in order to be able to make it work. So there's lots of interesting nuances around the whole television area. But, but if you take a steady market, and, and I'm ignoring Amazon, and I'm ignoring all those OTT products that are now out there, it's predominantly about how many people follow the game, how many people want to watch the game, and what is the value to you as an advertiser slash subscriber. Uh, or a subscription channel in order for you to be able to generate a return on investment. So if I buy your match for a million pounds, I need a million point one back in other revenues. And how am I going to justify that otherwise to my board? Because otherwise you're just putting money down a big hole. So would you be negative on, on rights, on TV rights at the present moment in time? Do you think that they went and peaked and have gone back down again? I do in this market. Um, I think I think other people probably see overseas markets uh, going up, um, but I, you know, it's who knows, who knows. It depends on the quality of the product you're actually selling. Because the other thing I, I'm a great believer in is less is more. Um, I think the opportunity for if you if you take a professional club. Um, and you have a massive squad to cover injuries. And also you've got 23 man, men in a 15 man game, which I've never really worked out the numbers, other than the fact you can change half your team at some point through the game. If you go back to having less people, you reduce your costs, but also you need to play less because you need to give them more rest. I mean, you understand the, uh, the, the playing issues, um, but the more, you make a product um, special, the more people will actually look forward to watching it. If it becomes wallpaper, it becomes wallpaper and you lose that connectivity with it as a, as a consumer. I think that's kind of the key point that we've been coming back to in the conversations that inspired us to put this show together. There's a limited number of games that players can play at a very high level every year. And if we work back from that number, we'll be able to fix what the calendar would look like. If players are only available for a maximum of between 25 and 32 games a season, then you've got to fit in all your tournaments. And at some point, you rate the quality of the tournaments and you say, well, that one's gone because it's not good yes. enough. And that one's gone because it's not good enough. And we can only play five games in the Six Nations. So sorry, Italy, off you go. And suddenly the games become far yeah. bigger events 
and yeah. this is exclusively at the elite professional level and yeah. I suppose they are the conversations that we're trying to understand what the, the tectonic plates preventing that or forcing us towards that are. I'm interested if you were today in the job of business operations director of the RFU, what, what would you be looking at the, the um, market and thinking, right, this is my way out of the maze we find ourselves in? Well, I mean, I think, I think that if you look at what's happened in New Zealand this week or last week, uh, when they've just um, uh, let go of half their people in the union, I mean, I think there's about, I think they had about 106, they've released about 80 people now. So what they've done effectively is to slash their cost base. And uh, I think that what we have to do as a sport is go back to basics. It's what really makes it work. What, why do people play it? And they play it. So if you take it from the basics of, you play it, you start playing it because it's, it's part of your school thing. You get introduced to it and you carry on playing it because you either you enjoy it and, and it's social and, you know, it's, it's all about those sort of things. And why do you continue to do it? Why do you continue to follow it? Because actually you've got a big connection with it. So what you need to do, I think, is about how do you bring people into the sport how do you keep them in the sport but from the right point of view if you if you're relying on people dipping in and out at some point later in their life so you've played football and you're coming in at the age of 30 you might stay because you might fall in love with the game but you might not and that's more there's, there's more risk with that group when it's when uh, certain football clubs become more fashionable than others I mean, there was a thing where effectively football's moved very much more up market in this country. So if you take Chelsea, for instance, if you were, you know, part of your thing, part of your social scene was, I'm going to join Chelsea as a season ticket holder because that's what we do. Um, they don't have that depth of involvement with the sport necessarily, but they might, might become deeper as you go along. Whereas the working class, uh, Newcastle fan has been priced out and that's really sad I think so you know it's it's about how do you keep people involved Manchester United have done very well by not not increasing their pricing to a level where it's in, unaffordable whereas some of the London clubs because they're fashionable probably have overpriced it and, and are blocking out the ability for people who don't earn very much to be able to go to a game if we can ever go to a game again, of course. Uh, Paul, if we were if we were looking back to, um, as you said, less is more. If we were looking back, is there is there a place that common ground could be found between the Premiership clubs and uh, and the RFU because they have, like, in I, I was eight years in Harlequins, and in every year of that eight years, there was uh, a potential schism from it i mean no it was yeah. at the start and you expect yeah. there to be a huge amount of difficulty and we we talked about some of the people that were in the rfu that were well-meaning had been in, involved in, in rugby for 30 40 50 years some of those guys were amazing administrators and some of them may not have been quite as simply and i remember looking at a, a legal document with my lawyers and finding out that i was the only player to have actually uh, got a, a um, a lawyer to look over the contract 
and the whole contract was was done by a conveyancy lawyer it wasn't done by a contract you know uh, and it was back it was all over the place it really was yeah. it was contradictory you couldn't sign it um, and i was the only one actually who had got a lawyer to look it over um, um, because there was a lot of blame come, comes from our side too. But, but if you look at the way they are, the, there was an enmity between the two, partly because of uh, the RFU taking a little bit of a break before they'd figure out what they were going to do. The clubs took their opportunity. They've been almost at each other's throat ever since. Yeah. Is, there, is there a place where they could find um, a sustainable, viable, commercial model between the two? Is that, is that on the table anywhere? Um, is it on the table? I don't know, but I think, I mean, there is a sustainable way of doing it, but you have to make major changes in terms of the way in which you operate, I think. And, uh, this is about, this just comes back to the question of how many people are within the union and it doesn't matter what the union is that understand the game and understand how the commercial aspects of that work. And what do you do with the funds once you've got them? Because at the end of the day, you've got effectively limited sources of funds, um, which are effectively, we've talked about already, which are effectively, uh, you can either do it through debt or, or equity, or you can, or, your, or just general revenues. So your general revenues are television, ticketing, blah, blah, blah. And you just keep going down that route. And that's, it's a matter of then of what do you do with that cash and how do you make it work for the sport in general? But everybody has to buy into it. And effectively, the lifeblood of the game is the amateur game. So you have to keep that funded somehow. But you also have to use those funds in a way that's effective. And equally, in the professional game, where everybody starts to get worried about it is very much the if we give the professional clubs more cash, what do they do with it? They just pay their people more. You know, that's the sort of normal thought process of what you should do with it. If you have a salary cap, stick to the salary cap. Don't try and be clever and actually go outside the salary cap, keep within it. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Uh, so if you take the NFL, which is one of, one of everybody's favourite sort of comparator, A, it's 16 matches plus preseason and, and playoffs. Uh, so it's a very limited series of games where you effectively you've got absolute focus for your audience for, for a short period of time and they know that's it. It goes against the grain of the American thing of you know baseball or they'll play 162 games a year or whatever it is. Um, the other thing they've got, of course, within American sport is the salary cap, but, but they, it's a very open book system there. And if you want to go above it, you can, but you pay a tax into the center uh, in some cases. So it's quite an interesting model. Now, if, if the premiership clubs decided that they wanted to go down that sort of more communist rule, uh, which effectively is what the NFL owners did when they came out of the meeting room and said, right, what we're going to do is we're going to have a draft system and so on and so forth. But then it, they had a limited market because it was only the in, only in the USA that played the sport. So therefore, you're not trying to drag in people from overseas at some vast amount of money because they are star players and marquee players sitting outside of the salary cap. 
So, but if you have a salary cap, stick to the salary cap. But then again, you know, run your business effectively. And the trouble is, if you're running effective businesses, you've you've got to is it a business or is it a is it an investment of love? You know, is it your train set effectively if you are an owner? Um, or are you in it to make money? The only people that are in it to make money at the moment is going to be CVC for sure because they'll want to return on their investment. You know, there you are ways of doing it. Well, can I ask you straight a question about CVC? Do you think they're good for the game? Um, I don't, I've never seen the deal, so I don't know what the deal actually says, but um, nobody invests without... Nobody invests vast amounts of money without a control over what what's going to happen to their cash. So uh, I think it's high risk for the game because it, effectively the game risks losing control of its destiny. And even though everybody says, no, no, it won't, uh, I'm not convinced. I suppose one of the, the, the counter the, the, the counterbalance to a lot of the commentary around CBC is that it, it, the, the, your description of the, the union was perfect earlier on. And I suspect it was replicated, as I said, across all the unions. So yeah. if an outsider comes in and somehow knocks heads together and says, we, we now own a bit of the Lions tour, we own a bit of all the leagues, mm. and we own a bit of the Six Nations, I want them all to be properly uh, scheduled. And this is your new schedule, lads. Away you go. That might be good for the game. Yeah, I mean, that's that's called financial control. Um, but, um, you know, what it does do is it takes away the history. Uh, that's the issue. And then what happens to it when the CBC get bored with it or sell it on to somebody else? Because it's now worth a lot of money. So Bernie Eccleston built F1, sells it to Liberty. And what are they going to do with it next? Who are they going to sell it to? You know, and it's it's about thinking about the lifespan of a product is very different to the lifespan of a social enterprise, which is really what a lot of sport is. I think there is a potential on, on Jer's point, there is the potential that they could become, well, if they are the largest stakeholder, individual stakeholder in, yeah. in each of the organizations, which I think they are. And, um, and, and that seems to have been the nature of the deal is to, to be in that position where they would have more than each individual club or union. Um, if they're in that place, if they can organize it within that idea, it constricts the professional game at the top. It actually cuts away, I think it cuts away a chunk of players, actually. I think it could make a lot mm. less games, less players. Um, it may lead to less, um, may lead to more focus within some of the club teams that the clubs would be looking as in let's say um, Leicester as an example could become predominantly English I mean they all are predominantly but could literally say actually we're not taking anybody from overseas no we're just going to yeah. keep it in that fashion and it could be built up along those lines there is a potential for that I'm frightened really frightened by actually what it could become um, and yet it could be something that saves the game because you mentioned history and you know, 150, 160 years of history of these clubs. Well, actually, an awful lot of what they did was was really good, and a lot of things that they stood for is what every commercial sponsor that you have wants to stand for. Those uh, those uh, 
morals or ethos or whatever it is that ties into it. They want to be associated with it. Um, but there is an opportunity of almost ring fencing the historical moments within a calendar. It's, mm. it's the chopping and changing and somebody wanting to have a new tournament or expand a new tournament or make it into playoffs at the end seems to have just concertinaed the whole season into 46 or seven or eight weeks, which is, yeah. that's unsustainable. It's unsustainable mm. for the players. Um, <clears throat> and it's then where is, the, where is the, the hurt going to end up? And I know we're, we're getting close to our time, but I wanted to ask you one, one question. Um, how, how could it be possible that the RFU would be losing money over the last number of years? It is a huge commercial vehicle. How has it gone? Like what, what is the reason behind them losing money? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. And in fact, they, they were losing money in the late 90s as well, to be fair. Um, and when I, when I came in, they were turning over something like 45 million in 2000, 2001. Um, and when I handed it over, we were turning over 130 million. Now, the, the, the numbers have gone up dramatically since then again. But, but the reality is, it's about cost base. So if you've got uh, an uncontrollable cost base, then you're going to lose money, because you've got a finite revenue stream, you have to live within your means. If you don't live within your means, you lose money. So inevitably what you have to do is reset i mean rather like the new zealand union have done in the last few days they've had to reset because they can't generate the cash in order to pay all these people but firstly you've got to start here you know, what do all these people do and how do we make sure how do we keep it simple so if if the bulk of the money is going on the amateur game which i'm not sure it is then uh why you know how do you how do you invest where do you get your money back from what do you what do you get back from the investment so the governing body is responsible for the whole game and it's and it's it's ethos really is to try and grow the game at all times the trouble is i mean the government don't believe the numbers of players given by the uh, by any governing body i don't think uh let alone the union um, and they run their own surveys to make sure that they can actually check the growth periods and actually reward governing bodies that do have growth in terms of investment from Sport England. So uh, on that basis, how is it that, that the unions can't or don't understand how many players they've really got? Uh, and the only good examples I can give of that are the things like the Canadians, you have to register to play because that's your insurance thing. And because of that, you know how many players you've got, you know, at all levels throughout the game. When the women's game really got going here, the one thing they really had that was stunningly good was, uh, albeit from a small base of 20 odd thousand players uh, back in the day, um, they had absolute knowledge of who these people were and how to talk to them. So they could actually talk directly to the players and not have the gatekeepers of the clubs who were very, very reticent about access to their players, effectively. But that causes all sorts of issues. So effectively, you need to have control of the whole game 
if you've got control of the whole game, you are then able to simplify the way in which you run it, I think. And you effectively let the clubs run their own piece of the game. You, you make it easier for them by cutting a travel cost. I love the idea from Ian McGeekin that said, why not just back, go back to regional competition rather than national leagues all the time? Because the travel costs are just a massive diversion of cash. Um, and if sociability and enjoyment is what the game's about, then actually you're going to get more of that if you keep it local. So how do you how do you make sure that you help people play the game well? So you take away red tape, you take away all that sort of baggage that unions and governing bodies, any governing body tends to put onto the junior game. Take it away. And if you've got less of that, you need less people at the centre. Um, and it's all very well talking about we've invested X amount of money in this scheme. And you go, well, what's the result? And the net effect on growth of playing level of the players within the whole game is probably negligible. And that's, that's the issue. You've got this limited amount of people who play the game professionally. And you've got some superstars in there, but you've got an awful lot of people who are probably journey, journeyman pros, uh, whose salaries have gone way up as everybody else's has gone up. And that's good for them and good for their agents, uh, bad for the clubs, effectively, because all you've done is drive the price up of the same product that you were paying less for last week. So, you know, you've got to be able to manage how you do that. And it takes tough negotiation yeah that um, all seems pretty intractable to be honest uh, like there are so many vested interests who actually can't work together at the moment is there an opportunity in this crisis this is my last question paul is there an opportunity in this crisis to get everybody around the table and to negotiate those hard negotiations to come out the other side with a, a shared vision for what rugby should look like uh, I think the opportunity is there, Joe, to do it. Uh, I think that um, whether it will happen or not, my answer would probably be no, because there's too, as you've said, there's too many vested interests. There's too many people who want to effectively uh, retain the status quo, and they're very comfortable and happy doing what they're doing. But um, I think there could be an awful lot of there's a lot of opportunity to change. And you know, at the end of the day, I have a I have a great love of the of the of the grassroots game as well as the pro game. And the grassroots game has to survive longer term because if it if it's not helped properly, it's gonna wither on the vine. Keith, I know that's a big concern of yours, and actually that's kind of one of the fundamental issues we have with the sport at the moment. Yeah, it is. I was kind of leaving that just hang in the air there. There was a Pinterest pause just because it's it's a it's it's a kind of damning thought that that we could lose um, the amateur side of the game. And and look, I've always felt privileged that I played, um, that I went to a, a rugby school, that I played in the amateur and professional time. I got to see both yeah. sides of it. Um, but I can tell you now that when you talk to any rugby supporter, it's uh, for uh, you know exactly as Paul said that an awful lot of them have played and they'll all say well I didn't play at your level um, but that never mattered because it was the link 
of the fact we're all that, we're all experts we are we are all experts we're all idiots uh, at the same time and we yeah. all kind of threw ourselves around with willful abandon and and there is something in, incredibly um look, we talk about the camaraderie and you talked about what are the parts that people like they like the emotional side of it they like the fact that it's very difficult they like the fact that it's a game for all shapes and sizes and they like the fact that um uh, that it is so unbelievably tough on the field. Yeah. And I like the fact that there's handshakes and hugs afterwards and that there's great yeah. friendships that are made from it. Yeah. So, um, I, look, we can't, we can't miss it. Um, we, can't, we can't let the amateur game fall by the wayside. Um, but it is a point of how do you, again, ring fence monies in this instance to make certain that the amateur yeah. game is run incredibly well, incredibly efficiently. efficiently. Um, uh, and for me, it's whether that reset button now looks at the yeah. system that we have. Um, well, yeah. And, tidy, I mean, I think and it's, tidies it up a bit more, Paul, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think it's back to basics, really. I mean, if you think about it, when I started playing, and when I, certainly when I left school, you ended up doing this, you paid to play. And you liked, you enjoyed paying for the privilege of being part of your team, effectively. So if you've got this cooperative system of funding that, that didn't require external funds being pumped in because your cost level was very low. You know, if you keep your cost level, because what, what do you need? You need kit. You need, you know, if you've got a clubhouse, you're lucky, but you can generate some funds out of that. And you know the the slightly ancillary bit, and a bit of help from the local chairman, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the membership generally ends up paying. So you have a fundraiser once a year, and we've all done that. We've all had to go and do stuff and raise money. As soon as you start paying people who have got nowhere, no chance of ever attracting anybody through the door to pay money. The, there's no point. I mean, you're going the wrong way. So you've got to stop players being paid at that level. But you also have at the same time, make sure you collect as much cash as you can. I mean, I'm involved in a, uh, a thing called Slate app, which is effectively helps junior clubs collect cash. And it does it on a phone because nobody carries cash anymore. And this crisis, this coronavirus will actually thrust more people that way because nobody will want to actually touch money anymore so it's all going to be by app or however we do it but um you know we, we've done very well. we we know that in football for instance only 60 percent of junior players pay their subs so the other 40 percent don't pay and that's a massive amount of money where does it all go you know oh so i'll pay you next week You've got to find a system that actually helps clubs to, to, to collect the money that's owed in order to actually help them survive. And survival is really the name of the game, I think, in a lot of places now. Yeah, um, across, all, across all levels. Across all levels. And it's, um, you know, the fact at the moment that uh, professional rugby has absolutely zero income coming in at all um, is a massive worry. Um, and you know, it's really got to make sure that it plans for how do you do that? How do you, how do you financially survive the, the crisis, as it were? How long is it going to go on for? We don't know. 
I hope we've raised some other questions uh, as well as that. Paul, you've been great with your time. It's been fascinating <laughs> listening to you. Thanks a million for being this week's guest on uh, Keith Wood's State of the Union. You're welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks, Keith. Yeah, cheers, Paul. Great seeing you again. And uh, we'll catch up very soon. Rugby on Off the Ball. With Vodafone, official sponsors of the Irish rugby team. Team of us. Everyone in. The OTB Podcast Network. OTB. AM. This is OTB Sports Radio.